So if you don't know me, my name is Zan. I'm one of the elders here at Summit. And uh, just yesterday, Ian drew my name out of a hat. So I'm up here preaching to you this morning. So all of your names are in there. This will be a fun summer. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so today, we are resuming our series on deeper faith, walking through Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith. So in the past month or so, uh, we have looked at the stories of Abel, of Enoch, and of Noah, we took a break last week to send Travis off on his sabbatical, and today we are jumping back in with the story of Abraham, and we'll be continuing this series uh, through most of the rest of the summer. So Abraham has a bit of a longer section in Hebrews, so today we'll just be looking at the first part, uh, just the very beginning of Abraham's story and the call of Abraham. Um, so. So far throughout our series on deeper faith, we've been noticing four elements in each faith story here. And those elements are, number one, with these people, God has spoken to them through his word. Secondly, their hearts were stirred in different ways. Third, they obeyed God. And finally, God bore witness about them. So today we'll be looking at the story of Abraham through this lens of deeper faith and looking at these four elements in Abraham's story. So the only way that I know how to begin a message is with a quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Weight of Glory, and in that he wrote, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I'll read that again in a moment. Um, and this, this quote touches on some huge topics here, and we'll use this as kind of a springboard and a framework for looking at the story of Abraham today and talking about that idea of hearing the call of God and what happens when we hear the call of God. So let me read this one more time. Lewis wrote, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So next... We'll jump into scripture. We'll take a look at Hebrews and the story of Abraham in Genesis. Uh, follow along if you like. The verses will also be up on the screen. Um, you'll notice that Travis typically preaches using the ESV. Um, I use the NIV translation. Um, they're both very similar translation. The NIV is the holier one, and it's the one that Jesus used. So I do prefer that one, but to each his own. So that was fun. First, looking at our story in Hebrews, picking up in Hebrews 11, uh, again, we'll just be looking at the first part of Abraham's story. Uh, verse 8 says, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. 
For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So today we'll be looking at that call, that call of God on Abraham's life. So let's skip over to the beginning of the Bible and look at the story of Genesis. Um, so I mentioned before that uh, Abraham is a very long story. It takes quite a few chapters in Genesis, but today we'll be looking at just the very beginning. So to start off, at this point, Abraham, his name is, is Abram. It's later changed to Abraham. But in chapter uh, 12 of Genesis, starting at verse 1, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. So this is the story we'll be looking at. And first we'll be looking at that first element of God spoke through his word to Abraham. And this is what we see here. So in this passage, uh, we can see three elements of God speaking to Abraham. First, we see that there's a call to detach, a call to separate. God says to Abraham, leave your country, leave your people, leave your father's household. Essentially, leave everything you've ever known. There's a call to detach. Secondly, there's a, call to, there's a promise. God says, I will make you into a great nation. I will make your name great. And that promise even goes beyond Abraham. God says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Third, we see that the fulfillment of this promise isn't seen yet. God says, I will show you. And we saw in Hebrews that Abraham didn't know where he was going. So when Abraham leaves his home, he's stepping out into the unknown. He doesn't have that opportunity to see the end result before he makes that decision. Even years later, when Abra at the point when Abraham dies, he hasn't seen the fulfillment of God's promise yet. God promised to make him a great nation, but he only has two sons at the time of his death. So God spoke through his word. Secondly, his heart was stirred in different ways. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time today. What happened in Abraham's heart when he heard this call of God? So the trouble we have here is that the inner workings of Abraham's heart aren't really detailed in Scripture. There are a lot of times in Scripture where I wish that it told us more about what happened or how people were feeling or things like that. Here it only says, so he left. So we're going to explore that a little bit. We're going to talk about uh, this idea of the call of God, how attached we can be to the things in our lives, and what that means when we hear the call of God in our lives. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever come to church thinking, man, I hope God doesn't convict me of anything today? I've got my schedule for the week set. I've done my grocery shopping already. I hope God doesn't come in and change my plans. So it's, it sounds a little silly, but I've been there. Sounds like some of you have been there as well. And thoughts like that are rooted in a belief that what I've got going on in my life is more worthwhile, is more valuable, they're simply better than anything that God might have planned for me. And that can be something big or something small. That can mean 
something like my career choice or a big life decision, or it can be something small like I've, I'm planning to watch the Bruins game tomorrow night with a big piece of chocolate cake. That's my plan for tomorrow night, and I hope that God doesn't call me away from that. So there's this belief that what I have going on in my life is better, more valuable, more worthwhile than anything that God might have planned for me, big or small. And because of that, we have a fear that following God's plans for my life might mean giving up good and valuable things. So I think all of us at different times believe this to some extent. So to put it in perspective, let's use uh, an example. We use the Abraham example. So if God showed up at my door tomorrow and he said, Zan, I want you to leave your job. I want you to leave your house, leave your church, get on 95 and start driving south. My reaction would be, no, I don't want to do that. I like my house. The roof leaks a bit, but I like it. I like my job. I have to wake up early, but I like my job. And I, if God takes me too far away, then I'm not going to get the Red Sox on local television. So these thoughts are, what do I have to lose if God's plans are different than mine? And they reflect that belief that what I have going on in my life is better than something that God might call me to. And there's a fear that if God's plans are different than mine, then I may have to give up good or valuable things that I don't want to give up. So I'll use another example to illustrate a bit further. Um, I work in finance, so we're going to use a finance example. This is going to be really exciting. So in the tax world, there's this term called basis. So basis, you know, Maddie, if I mess this up, just keep quiet, okay? So basis essentially means how much have you invested in something? What's, what's your stake in your assets? So for example, if I buy a house, I buy a house for $200,000, and we're using numbers, so make sure you write this down. I buy a house for 200000 my basis in that house is 200000 right? That's how much I invested in it. Now let's say I take $50,000 and I do some renovations on that house. My basis in that house is now 250000 That's how much I've invested in it. You guys with me so far? Good. You're going to all, all be able to do your tax returns at the end of this. So I have my house. I've invested two fifty. Let's say I sell that house for 300000 In that case, I have a gain of $50,000 because I sold it for more than I invested in it. On the other hand, let's say I sell it for only 200. In that case, I have a loss of $50,000. Now let's say, worst case scenario, a tornado comes through, destroys everything, I haven't paid my insurance premiums, and I've lost everything. I've lost the $250,000 that I've invested in that house, ouch. So the IRS uses this concept of basis to figure out how much you should be taxed when you sell things, um, but I think we can generalize it to think about how much do we have invested in the things in our lives. And not only dollar values, but how much time, how much effort have you invested in your job, in education, in relationships, you name it. And because of that, how much do I have to lose if these things go away? So when God shows up and says, Abraham, leave everything. Zan, leave everything. I think, man, how much am I going to lose if I follow God? How much is this going to cost me? So what does scripture say about this? Paul, writing to uh, the church in Philippi in chapter 3, he wrote, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more... I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish 
that I may gain Christ. So what Paul's saying here is that I've already counted everything in my life as a loss. My basis in the things in my life is zero. I've already counted them a loss because Christ is more valuable to me. So going back to this belief that what I've got going on in my life is is better and more valuable, Paul didn't believe that. He said, everything in my life is rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. And this word rubbish that he used, it doesn't really mean the things that we throw in the trash. It more means the things that we flush down the toilet. So that gives you an idea of the comparison he was making there. It's it's mud pies in a slum. Going back to our quote from C.S. Lewis, it's mud pies in a slum compared to a holiday at sea. So Paul had no fear that God was going to call him away from everything. Because when what God calls us away from is rubbish compared to what God is calling us to. So let me say that again. What God calls us away from, big or small, is rubbish compared to what God is calling us to. And Paul had joy in that. His letter, uh, the Philippians letter was written, you could sense the joy in that letter. He, was, he wrote that letter from house arrest. A lot of scholars think that as he was actually writing the letter or, or dictating the letter, that he was actually chained to a guard. But he was joyful. If you asked Paul, there'd be no place that he'd rather be than where God had him. So my hope for us is that when we hear that call of God in our lives, that we would entertain the thought that God doesn't want us to just grit our teeth, suck it up, and do it because he said so and he's God. But maybe what God has in store for us is more worthwhile than anything else we might want in our lives. Maybe there's a holiday at the sea out there and we're just looking at mud pies. So this is not a sermon about how everything in your life is meaningless. I know we've kind of been heading that direction so far. But the point is, is that that's not the point. The point is something else. Is that confusing enough? So the point is, is that we may be missing out on meaningful, valuable things because we're focused on less meaningful things. We may miss a holiday at the sea because we don't want to leave our mud pies. Now, if there's no such thing as a holiday at the sea, if that doesn't exist, then our mud pies might be the best thing out there. But if there is a holiday at the sea, if there is that opportunity to gain Christ that Paul was so passionate about, let's not miss out on that. And this is where faith comes in. We often talk about faith in terms of how faithful are we, how's your faith, are you growing your faith, exercising your faith muscles. And sometimes I think we can miss a big element of what faith means. So a big part of this concept of faith is being persuaded, it's being convinced. In that sense, the focus of my faith is not on me, but the focus of my faith is on the object of my faith. So if you have faith in something, you'd better be convinced that that thing is real and that that thing is worth having faith in. So if you've seen pictures uh, in the mountains of these rickety old rope bridges with like the rotting wooden slats, and someone says, have faith, step out, take a step. No, that's dumb faith. I'm not persuaded, I have no reason to believe that that rope bridge is worth having faith in. On the other hand, I have faith in God because I am persuaded that he is real. I'm convinced that he is real and his word is true. And that faith informs the decisions in my life. So let's look at another passage here to illustrate this a bit further. So Jesus used a parable in Matthew 13. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. When a man found it, he hid it again, 
and then in his joy, he sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and bought it. So we have two kind of parallel stories here. We have a man uh, who finds a treasure in a field, sells everything, and a merchant who finds a pearl of great value and also sells everything to obtain this pearl. So we have to make one assumption when we're reading the story. We have to assume that these guys aren't idiots, that they have at least half a brain. And we can also notice that it doesn't say that God said so, so they had to. No, it says, in his joy, the man sells everything he has to buy that field. It says, the merchant considers the pearls of great value. That's why he sold everything to buy this pearl. He doesn't do this because he has to or because he's obligated. The merchant does this because it's a profitable transaction. It's logical. He's gaining more than he's giving up. So time out for a sec. Zan, are you saying that we never have to obey God unless it's profitable for me? No, that's not what I'm saying. We'll get to obedience a bit later. Right now we're talking about being persuaded, about having faith. So the man and the merchant, they're persuaded that this treasure, these pearls have more value than anything else in their life. What they're getting is worth more than what they're giving up. So it makes sense to sell everything he has to get that treasure. It would actually be foolish not to do that. So looking back at Abraham, we see that by faith, Abraham obeyed and went. So we can read this as because he was persuaded, because he was convinced Abraham obeyed and went, he left everything he knew and followed God because what God had for him was of more value than what he was leaving behind. And just like Paul, just like this merchant with the pearl, it was a worthwhile decision because he was giving up something good for something much, much better. He was giving up a mud pie for a holiday at the sea. And Hebrews tells us his motivation. This is where it starts to get a bit, a bit exciting. And in Hebrews 11.10, it says, For he was looking forward to a city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So this term looking forward here means uh, expecting or anticipating and being ready to receive something. Kind of like how we look forward to a weekend or vacation. Abraham was looking forward to this city with foundations. So we know that God took Abraham to the promised land, but that's not what Abraham was looking forward to. We know that Abraham actually, he didn't know where he was going. So he was looking forward to something else. He was looking forward to this city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. So if something has a foundation, what does that mean? It means it's lasting, it's permanent, it's not going anywhere. So back to us for a sec. The reality for us is that a lot of the things we spend our time and energy on, they're not lasting. They're mud pies. So when you and I get to heaven and we're worshiping Jesus together, you know it's not going to matter. Your job title, your degree, your retirement account, how nice your lawn looks, how big your house was, it won't matter. And I'll even go here, how many Super Bowl rings Tom Brady has, not going to matter. Probably seven or eight at least, but it's not going to matter. Again, not that these things are meaningless, not that they're devoid of value, but they're of lesser value. These are the things that were traded away by the merchant in order to obtain that pearl of great value. These are the things that Paul referred to as rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. So what Abraham looked forward to 
what we have to look forward to is eternal. So we'll jump over to uh, one of the Gospels for a moment. Uh, Jesus, on the last night of his ministry, the night before he was crucified, he, he spent the night with his disciples, and he said this. He said, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So let me just say, sometimes I think we can get excited about heaven for the wrong reasons. I've heard things like, I can't wait for the food, or how big my house is, or no more traffic, or things like that. But the thing is, I don't think the Bible really promises any of that in heaven. But what it does promise is that eternal life is knowing Jesus. Even going back to the C.S. Lewis quote, he mentioned uh, the staggering nature of rewards, the riches. If we're thinking about a big pile of money or if we're thinking about a big cushy house when we hear of rewards and riches, we're thinking far too small, far too small. So Kristen said this up here um, a few weeks ago that really resonated with me that um, she said that we were, we were made for worship. We were made to worship God. We weren't made to have a meaningful career. We weren't made to be wealthy. We weren't made for cat videos on Facebook or Five Guys Burgers. God made us to enjoy those things, but we weren't made for them. We were made to know Jesus. We were made to worship. And that is the pearl of great value. That is the surpassing greatness that Paul wrote about. And if we're happy with anything else, then we're far too easily pleased. Our desires are not too strong, but too weak. So let me say that again. And if you take only one thing from this morning, please let it be this, that if you're finding greater joy, greater value, or greater meaning in anything besides your relationship with Jesus, then you are far too easily pleased. There is much, much, much more for you. There is a holiday at sea, and everything else is a mud pie in the slum. Now, God gives us a glimpse of this city that Abraham was looking forward to. So I'm a little sensitive to spoilers. I haven't seen the new Avengers yet, so don't spoil it for me. But the Bible, worth spoiling. If, you've, if you're only halfway through, that's worth jumping forward and reading how it ends. And we'll, we'll take a little glimpse at that here. So Revelation 21, uh, the book of Revelation is um, a vision of the end times given by God to the Apostle John. And Revelation 21 is, it's essentially the end of the story. It's how things are going to end. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with the men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this. I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is what we have to look forward to. 
I will be there, and if you're a believer in Jesus, you'll be there too. We'll be worshiping God and rejoicing together. And your career won't matter. How many letters or acronyms come after your name won't matter. How big your house was won't matter. We're going to realize how inconsequential these things are that pretend to be so important right now. And we're going to enjoy that holiday at the sea. I'll read just a little piece of this again. It says, God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Don't you long for that? Don't you look forward to that? And the thing is that I, I think we really need to appreciate this. this. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't imaginary. This is real. This is going to happen. One day we'll be there. It could be thousands of years from now. It could be next year but it's coming. I'm persuaded, I'm convinced that this is true and this is happening. And the question is, are we living in light of that reality? Abraham lived in light of that reality when he obeyed the call of God. He was looking forward to this eternal city. So let's keep going in Revelation. Next it says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So I'll pause here. So we've already said that a lot of the things that we're paying attention to right now won't matter. This is one thing that will matter. Did you live your life following Jesus? One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, that part makes more sense if you, if you read the rest of Revelation, he came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates in the south, three in the north, three, in the, uh, three gates in the east, three in the north, three in the south, and three in the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles at the Lamb, of the Lamb. So here we get to the foundations. Abraham was looking forward to a city with foundations, meaning a lasting city. But here we have the actual foundations of this city. And as I'm reading this, I would expect that the foundations of the city of God would be Jesus, right? Because Jesus is the answer to everything in church. But no, the foundations are the 12 apostles of the Lamb, which seems kind of confusing. Why do they get to be the foundations? So to explore that, we're going to jump back to John 17, again, the last night of Jesus' ministry. And he says, I have brought you, you being God, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. So you may have heard this before, but what is the work that Jesus was talking about? He wasn't talking about his death. That hadn't happened yet. What Jesus was talking about was that he had completed the training of the disciples over his three-year ministry. And why is that important? Because from these disciples, the message of Jesus, the gospel spread and it spread across the world. From this little band of people 2,000 years ago, the church, the big C church, the, the body of believers was born, and here we are today. So it was necessary for Jesus to spend time training and equipping the disciples for that to happen. 
So to keep going, we'll look next at Ephesians. And here the Apostle Paul is writing about unity in Christ between Jews and Gentiles. And he writes, For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So what Paul is talking about here is Jew believers and Gentile believers being united together to form this holy building rising up to God, and that's built on the foundation of the prophets, the Old Testament writings that pointed towards Jesus, and the apostles who spread the good news of Jesus, with Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And Paul describes it as this this temple where God dwells, which is kind of metaphorical, but also kind of not. So in Jesus' time, the Jews would make sacrifices to God at the physical temple in Jerusalem. But that temple was destroyed around 70 AD. And there are many, many references throughout the New Testament that believers in Jesus are the new temple. That God's new dwelling place, not a temple anymore, it's the people who believe in him. So this temple was a building, now it's people. It's the apostles of Jesus, it's the Jews and the Gentiles that Paul was writing to. It's every person who believes in Jesus, it's you and me. And together we form this new temple of God. And in Revelation, we get to see the full manifestation of it. We see this holy city being established. That city is God's temple, not the building, but the people. This, this metaphor of the temple turns into reality in Revelation. Now, exactly what that's going to look like, I don't really know. But we do know that it's believers in Jesus. So I'm a part of it, and you're a part of it. And Jesus himself, as the chief cornerstone, were built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. So let's keep going. So Hebrews described it as a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. So we'll focus for a second on that last part of the sentence. God is the architect of this church, this city that's made to glorify him. So think for a minute of of all the impressive architectural works in the history of the world, things made out of wood or glass or stone, these beautiful architectural works, even like a cake could be an amazing architectural work. Now consider this. When God created the world, he wasn't done until he made man in his image. We are his masterpiece. We are the capstone of creation. We are God's most beautiful and most amazing creation because we are made in his image. Nothing else was made in his image. And with us, God is designing, God is building this city, this temple of his people, not out of glass or stone or anything else, but out of people who are made in his image. We are his raw materials, and he is the architect. And I fully believe that we won't really appreciate how amazing this is until we see it. But consider the most beautiful things you might see in this world, natural or man-made, a sunset mountain, building, oceans, whatever. I don't think any of these can rival the beauty of the church that God is building and that we'll one day see. 
all of God's people worshiping together, every tribe, every nation and tongue, people of all colors, worshiping God together, that is the masterpiece that God is building. That's his architectural work. And we get to be a part of it. We get a taste of it today, and someday we'll experience it in full, not just to see it, but to be it. And that's what Abraham was looking forward to, the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And God is really looking forward to that too. That's the reason that Jesus came. In Hebrews 12 too, it says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down on the, at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the joy that was set before Jesus, is his church, his people. That's what was missing before Jesus went to the cross. This is the holiday at the sea that we can easily miss if we're distracted by our mud pies. So my hope for us is that we would live in light of this reality, that when we hear the call of God, big or small, that we would remember what matters, that the call of God is not to make you miserable, to drag you away from what you want, It might do that, but the call of God is an invitation, an opportunity to participate in this city that he's building. And that is of much, much greater value in every sense of the word than anything else that might distract us. So that brings us to this third point of obedience. And I promise we're more than halfway through here. So third point is he obeyed. The third thing that we see in the the hall of faith is obedience. Abraham obeyed and went, and because of that, he was able to experience the promises of God, the faithfulness of God. So we mentioned that the big first element of faith is being persuaded, being convinced. I'm going to say that obedience means living like we've been persuaded, living like we've been convinced. It's living like this is true. So there will be a few people up here preaching while Travis is gone. That thing of the hats and the names, I made that up. Um, If you think that we're up here because we've got it together and you don't, please let me shatter that illusion. I'm excited to preach on this because this is stuff that God is challenging me on, so I get to share it with you so God can challenge you on it too. You're welcome. So I mentioned that I work in finance. And I mentioned that um, career is something that I focused on. I'm focused on progressing in my career. I'm in grad school, and I'm looking for opportunities to develop at work. And I've been frustrated recently because I've hit a a lot of roadblocks in my career development. There's been a lot of uh, disappointment and frustration. And as I processed that with God and prayed about it, God asked me, Zan, what if you were as focused on your spiritual development as you were on your professional development? Ouch. And I realized that I've been distracted with a mud pie. And again, not that my career is meaningless. I find value in my work. But compared to my relationship with Jesus, it's rubbish. So while my career is pretending to be of utmost importance now, it's not going to matter one bit when we're worshiping God together here in Revelation. And I've been challenged to live like that is true. So let me tell you another story. A few weeks ago, Russ hosted a fundraising banquet for the Navigators. A lot of you were there. And I went to that fundraising banquet. I had one idea in my head of what I was going to give. 
Not long after it started, God gave me his idea of what he wanted me to give. And we'll just say that it wasn't less. So thanks, God. I didn't really need that. So I spent most of the night only half listening to Russ, which is what I usually do when Russ is speaking. (laughs) Jen knows what I'm talking about, yeah. And I was also arguing with God about what he wanted me to give. And I was thinking about, what else could I use that money for? It could go towards my mortgage. I might need a new car at some point and save it. I was thinking about all the possible opportunities that I'd lose by giving this money away. And I realized that we don't think those kinds of thoughts when money is well spent. If you spent money or time on something and it was worth it to you, you don't dwell on what else you could have spent that money or time on. So did anybody go see, well, back, back to Avengers again, did anyone see Endgame recently? Ken, you saw it? When you walked out of that theater, were you thinking, man, I wish I could have those three hours back? No? No, because it was worth it. It was worth it. You could have folded a lot of laundry in that time, but it was worth it spending those three hours watching that, uh, watching that movie. Now, on the other hand, I went to a Sea Dogs game a couple weeks ago with some coworkers. And at the ballpark now, they have, they have lobster popcorn. So one of my coworkers, yeah, I like your face. One of my coworkers had to try it out, so she bought it. It was $14 for lobster popcorn. And it was this tiny little cup of popcorn with like two or three pieces of lobster in it for $14. And you bet she was thinking about, what else could I have spent that $14 on? That's like three or four Sea Dogs biscuits. Sea Dogs biscuits. That's what I bought with my money. So my point is, uh, going back to that fundraising banquet, my thoughts about what else could I be spending that money on, they were rooted in the perspective that I was wasting that money, that it wasn't going anywhere worthwhile. Those thoughts weren't rooted in my faith in God or my persuasion that he is worth more than anything else in my life. Now, If this is a lie, if this isn't true, if we're never going to be worshiping God together like we read in Revelation, then my thoughts were true. That gift was a waste of money, and I would have been better off spending it on literally anything else. But if this is real, then a gift to help spread the gospel of God is perhaps more worthwhile than anything else that I could do with my money, far more valuable than putting it towards my mortgage or my 401k or whatever else. So I hope that we can take that perspective when we're faced with these decisions, when we hear the call of God to look away from our mud pies, big or small. Now, if this this is false, if we've been fooled, then we're all wasting our time here on Sunday morning. You could be at brunch right now. Any money that you put in that offering basket back there is a waste, and any time that you spend praying or reading your Bible is stupid and pointless. But... If this is not false, if this is true, then this is our best possible time, best possible use of our time to spend here a Sunday morning worshiping with the body of believers. I've been to brunch like once in my life, and I'm okay with that. I'm at church every other Sunday. Any money that you put in that offering basket, if this is true, that's maybe the most worthwhile use of your money. And any time that you spend at home praying, reading the Bible, cultivating a relationship with God is maybe the best use of your time. Anytime you share your faith with a friend has eternal impact that's going to matter when this day comes, and that's so, so, so important. So that brings me to to two barriers to faith we can experience 
and there's some overlap between these. They're not entirely distinct. But the first one is that we talked about faith as uh, being persuaded, being convinced. So maybe you're not persuaded. Maybe you're not convinced. Maybe you don't believe that following God's plans are of greater value or more worthwhile than the things in your life. I've been there. I've, I've sat on my couch with my journal and told God, honestly, I'd rather have my mud pies right now. I don't really believe that following God's plans for me will be better or more profitable. And the answer to that is spend time with God. Let him show you. I have a, a, my favorite TV show aired years and years ago. And from my perspective, the only reason that somebody might not like this show is that you haven't seen it yet. Some of you might think that about a book or your favorite ice cream flavor. You can't try it and not like it. If you try it, you'll love it. How true is that of a relationship with Jesus? If you give God the opportunity, he will persuade you. But if you shut him out, if you don't give him that window, don't count on being persuaded. Secondly, we as Christians suffer frequently from short-term memory loss. We may be persuaded, we may be convinced of the greater value of following God, but it fades, we forget. I can't tell you how many times during a sermon when I've been sitting in these seats that I've been convicted, I've been convinced and energized to obey God in some particular way. But then church ends and I go home and the day-to-day takes over, got chores to do, laundry to fold, maybe the Patriots are on, and suddenly that thing that I was convicted of here, energized here at church, it suddenly seems less important. It's just not that big a deal. So we often fail to walk in obedience because we are incredibly forgetful. Even after God shows us beyond any doubt that he is of greater value, we still go back and become preoccupied with our mud pies. I'm guilty of this. So again, our answer, our answer is that we need to go back to God. We need to go back to the word. We need to allow him to remind us and we need to do that continuously. And our experience of his word needs to be woven into our lives. Pastor Rick said last week that we can't be periodical Christians. We can't flick the switch as we're walking in here to church, flick it back off as we're leaving. There's no such thing as a periodical Christian. We need to be continuous Christians. We need to weave his word into our daily lives. Now, how we do that is an entirely different sermon, and I've gone on long enough, but I'll give you a snapshot. It means prayer. It means scripture memory. It means meeting with each other. It means small groups. You've heard it so many times. Circles are better than rows. Okay, we need to keep practicing this question and response while Travis is gone, so we're good at it when he gets back. Circles are better than rows. So, that's obedience. And lastly, and I'll close with this, God bore witness about him. Abraham's fingerprints are all over Scripture. He's known as the patriarch of the faith. And he had that opportunity because he stepped out and he followed God. He was persuaded that what God had for him was more valuable than what he was leaving behind. If he hadn't made that choice, then he wouldn't have had the chance to experience it. And so that's my hope for all of us, is that when we hear that call of God and think about man, what's it going to cost me that we wouldn't live in fear of the call of God in our lives? 
but we see that as an opportunity to experience something more valuable and allow God to show us how that is more valuable. So let's pray, and the worship team can come up. Father God, I thank you that it is true you are more valuable, more worthwhile. You are that pearl of great price. And you give us the opportunity to experience life with you, to experience life as part of your church, your temple. And you desired it to be that way. You desired to have us worshiping you. Father, I pray for everyone here in this room as we hear the call, your call in, in our lives, big or small, that you'd help us to look past our fear, that you'd help us to look at the opportunity, not the obligation to follow you, but the opportunity to experience the amazing things that you have to offer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.